This is an Alexandrian Media original podcast. This episode of the Composer Chronicles contains subjects that may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Please see the show notes for details. In the world of classical music, opera is one of the most celebrated forms of art, brimming with tradition and rich history. Of course, music and theater have been used together since the ancient world, but opera as we know it today has its origins in the 16th century Italy, with a piece called Daphne by Jacopo Peri. As opera began sweeping across Europe, many countries began adopting it for themselves, claiming that their version of the art was much better and some even argued that theirs was the most pure form, despite the art's origins. The history of opera could take years to dissect, so we're going to jump ahead to somewhere a little bit more modern. However, I would like to start by posing a question. Where did musical theater come from? Well, somewhere in the history of opera, countries like England began desiring a similar form of opera, one that continued to use spoken dialogue. Since then, musical theater began to take on its own identity, and today we see musical theater and opera as two completely different theatrical arts, especially for those in the general public. Of course, they now demand separate techniques used by the singers, but we must not forget that they stem from the same tree. To prove just how close they once were considered, we're traveling back to the 1930s at the time that the American composer George Gershwin was writing his second and most popular opera, Corgi and Bess. Or is it a musical? No, it's definitely an opera. Is it? This is The Composer Chronicles a storytelling podcast about music through the ages. I'm Stephen Trigar, and this is episode number 53, Opera on Broadway, Gershwin and Porgy and Bess.
Catfish Row, Charleston, South Carolina, 1920s. After a hard day's work, inhabitants of Catfish Row finally have an opportunity to relax. Clara sings a lullaby to her baby. While the drug dealer's port in life, Clara's husband Jake, and several other men of the town play a game of craps. Serena expresses her disapproval of the game, considering it a sin to gamble. But the game commences as Jake takes a turn singing a lullaby to his and Clara's baby. Porgy, a disabled beggar, rides by the game in his goat cart and attempts to join in when Crown inserts himself into the game with his partner Bess tagging along. As the game commences, Crown gets increasingly drunk and high on drugs, and as a result, he loses to Robbins, Serena's husband. Crown can't lose. He won't lose. So he grabs a cotton hook and kills Robbins with it and runs off before the police can arrive. Bumping into Bess on his way out, he tells her to fend for herself, but he'll be back to get her when the dust settles. Seeing that she is alone and vulnerable, Sportin' Life offers to take Bess with him to New York, giving her a dose of happy dust, but she refuses all his advances. None of the townspeople will aid her, at least not without disgust, all but Porgy, who offers her shelter and protection. The following evening, Serena leads the mourners in a spiritual at her husband's funeral. A plate has been placed on his chest, inviting attendees to donate money to the cost of the burial. Porgy enters into the service with Bess, who offers a contribution. She is instantly rejected by Serena, thinking the money came from Crown, but Porgy steps in and explains that it is his money, not Crown's. The police arrive and accuse Peter, the local honey vendor, of the murder. Due to his age, he is fearful of what they might do to him, so he tells them that Crown is in fact the murderer, but the police still arrest him as a material witness. The Undertaker arrives shortly after to bury Robbins, but Serena is short on money. The Undertaker agrees to bury Robbins as long as Serena pays him the balance, as he doesn't wish to see Robbins' dead body shipped off to be used as a cadaver. A month later, Jake and the other fishermen are mending their nets when Sportin' Life approaches them to sell his happy dust. But Maria, Catfish Rose matriarch, chases him off before he gets the chance. Bess has made her decision to leave Crown for good, and lawyer Fraser sells Bess a divorce despite her and Crown never being married. Today is supposed to be a happy day. Everyone is preparing to leave for a church picnic on Kittawa Island, but Sportin' Life interrupts Bess again to beg her to come to New York with him and tries to give her more happy dust. She refuses again, with Porgy threatening him as he chases Sportin' Life off. Porgy and Bess have found true happiness together, and with each day, their love blossoms. Bess is hesitant to go to the picnic, but Porgy insists that she go. After the day on Kittawa Island comes to a close, Bess hurries to catch the steamboat that will take her back to Catfish Row. But Crown, who has been hiding on the island since Robin's murder, stops her and asks her to join him. Bess rejects his offer, saying she now has a new life with Porgy. When she continues back to the boat, 
Crown grabs her and kisses her passionately. He laughs loudly as he drags her into the woods, the boat leaving without her. A week has passed since the Kittawa Island picnic, and Bess has returned to Catfish Row only a few days ago. Since her return, she has been talking deliriously, taken on a fever, and has been extremely ill. Peter, released from police custody that morning, advises Porgy to take her to the hospital, but Serena stops him and prays over Bess. She informs Porgy that Bess will be better by 5 o'clock, and indeed the prayers are answered. Bess, cured of her ailment, approaches Porgy to say that she wants to stay with him, but when Crown returns, she'll be forced to go. Porgy will have none of it. He and Bess love each other, and he will protect her. The wind begins to pick up, and the hurricane bell sounds, sending the wives of several fishermen into a panic, especially since there had been a storm warning that very morning. The storm rages on well into the next day. Everyone is taking shelter in Serena's room when suddenly there is a knock on the door. It's Crown, seeking shelter and looking for Bess. No, she won't go with him. She belongs to Porgy alone. Crown mocks Porgy, and as the townspeople pray for deliverance, he interjects with a vulgar song of his own. Amidst the chaos, Clara sees Jake's boat has overturned, and she rushes out to save her husband. Bess cries out for one of the men to go after her, but only Crown responds. Once the storm has passed, the town grieves for those lost in the storm, including Jake, Clara, and they assume Crown also died among them. Sport and Life mocks their weeping dropping hints that Crown is still alive while Bess lulls Clara's baby to sleep. That night, Crown comes to claim Bess at Porky's house, but Porky is ready for him. Before Crown can enter, Porky kills him. The following afternoon, a detective is investigating Crown's murder, but he is coming up short. Nobody knows what happened, and nobody witnessed it. They all thought he died in the storm, but here Crown lies bludgeoned to death. Porgy is asked by the detective and the coroner to come with them to identify Crown's body, but he refuses, far too horrified to look at Crown's face. Porgy is dragged off by the detective and coroner, nearly arrested for his refusal. With Porgy gone, Sportin' Life steps in and tries to convince Bess that Porgy will be locked up. With that, he attempts to lure her away once again to New York, but she again refuses. This time, he forces Happy Dust on her, and as she is high, he paints her a picture of what life would be like with him in New York. She regains her strength and runs inside, but Sportin' Life knows that he left his mark and leaves a packet of happy dust outside her door, and waits. A week later, Porgy returns home from jail. He is happy with his freedom, and won a great deal of money playing craps with his fellow inmates. He gives gifts to everyone in the town as he looks around for Bess, only to be told by Serena and Maria that Bess has gone to New York with sport and life. Porgy cannot live without her, 
And so he packs up his go cart and he follows her. This is a story told in George Gershwin's opera Porgy and Bess. In 1926, Gershwin read DuBose Hayward's novel Porgy, which had been published the year prior. Hayward had also produced a play by the same name with his wife Dorothy, and after reading the novel, Gershwin would propose that he write an operatic version. Hayward was to be his librettist, and they began working on the project in 1934. We'll pick back up with Gershwin's story after the break. Steven. Aside from being a host of this podcast, I am the founder of Alexandrian Media, a growing production company based in Philadelphia that aims to make art and culture accessible to those in our modern era. I'm here today to tell you about an incredible opportunity. Alexandrian Media is a proud partner of Run the Town, a virtual race hosted by Roy Belzer Fitness. If you're someone who is normally quite active, but haven't been able to get out there and run races or done any fitness related activities or sports, then this is a perfect opportunity for you. Run the Town is a virtual race that could be done anywhere in the world. This fundraiser will aid in bolstering the Roy Belzer Fitness Scholarship Program, benefiting all those that are looking to pursue their fitness journey to feel better and to live a healthier lifestyle, but are financially incapable of getting started. If you're a listener to any of my podcasts, you'll know that I've been a student of Roy's for just about a year now, and I've been a huge supporter of his class. Robusta Fitness has been the best support system I've needed to work on my health. And that's why I'm here to tell you that listeners of this podcast can sign up to run the town for 10% off your choice of three races, a 5k walk slash run, a 10k walk slash run, or a half marathon race. And yes, I did say walk slash run because you do not have to run this race. Join me and let together help Roy Belzer Fitness hit their goal of 1,000 racers across the U.S. and give people looking to jumpstart their health and fitness journeys the chance to get personal training. Click on the link in the show notes to sign up right now. I hope to see you there. Gershwin's proposal to Hayward to collaborate on writing an opera based on Porgy, the two signed a contract with the Theater Guild to write the opera in the fall of 1933. The following summer, Gershwin and Hayward traveled to Folly Beach, South Carolina, which is a small island near Charleston. 
Hayward was born and raised in Charleston, but Gershwin wanted to be able to experience the culture of the town and Folly Beach for himself, specifically to get a feel for the music there. Gershwin had specific hopes for the opera. He wanted to capture the feeling of the town without being limited to the folk music there. And so he did his research carefully. This was to be a folk opera. In a New York Times article in 1935, Gershwin explained why he called it this. He said, Porky and Bess is a folk tale. Its people naturally would sing folk music. When I first began work on the music, I decided against the use of original folk material because I wanted the music to be of all one piece. Therefore, I wrote my own spirituals and folk songs. They are still folk music, and therefore, being in operatic form, Porky and Bess becomes a folk opera. Ah, so there we have the reasoning for Porky and Bess being an opera. So why then does it get called a musical if Gershwin so clearly said that it is an opera? The answer for that lies within the work's performance history. Gershwin's first version of the opera was four hours long in total which I'm sure you can believe after such a lengthy synopsis, which was itself a shortened version of Gershwin's final version. This version was performed privately in concert at Carnegie Hall in the fall of 1935. Gershwin chose his own choral director for this performance, choosing Ava Jesse, who also directed her own renowned choir. It didn't take long for the world premiere performance to take place. That September, it was staged at the Colonial Theater in Boston as a tryout for Broadway. The success of the world premiere led the opera to open on Broadway at the Elvin Theater just over a week later. Fortunately for audiences in both Boston and New York, Gershwin made significant cuts to shorten the running time and to also tighten up the drama. But there was more than just that. Anne Brown, who was the original Bess, made an incredible impression on Gershwin. She was a 20-year-old student at Juilliard, the first African-American vocalist to be admitted there. When she discovered that Gershwin was writing a musical version of Porgy, she wrote to him, asking to sing for him. He secretly invited her, and would continue to invite her back frequently to sing the songs as he wrote them. But her impression on him wouldn't end there. Originally, the character of Bess was just a secondary character, but the more involved Brown became, the more Gershwin liked the idea of making Bess just as important as Porgy. He expanded the part of Bess and cast Brown to play her. With rehearsals complete and previews underway, Gershwin invited Brown to join him for lunch. There he told her, I want you to know, Miss Brown, that henceforth and forever after, George Gershwin's opera will be known as Porgy and Bess. The initial run of Porgy and Bess lasted 124 performances in that year alone. After the Broadway run came to a close, a tour started in January the next year, traveling to Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, and Chicago, before finally ending up in Washington, D.C. in March. The performance in Washington, D.C. was certainly a momentous one, as the cast led by Todd Duncan, who was the original Porgy, protested segregation at the National Theater. The management gave into the demands of the cast, resulting in the venue's first integrated audience for a performance there. 
A few years later, in early 1937, Gershwin began to complain of blinding headaches and claimed to frequently smell burning rubber. On February 11th, he gave a performance of his piano concerto in F in a special concert of his own music with the San Francisco Symphony Orchestra under the baton of Pierre Monteau. When it came to being a pianist, Gershwin was known to be a star when performing his own music. But tonight, he was suffering. He was having problems with coordination and blacked out several times. At the time, he was working on several film projects and living with his brother Ira in Beverly Hills. Ira's wife, Leonore, became increasingly disturbed by George's mood swings and his inability to eat without spilling his food all over the dinner table. She could no longer take it, so she insisted that he move out of their house and live in the empty house of lyricist Yip Harburg while being under certain care. On July 9th, he collapsed in Harburg's house while working on the score to the film The Goldwyn Follies. He was rushed to the hospital where he fell into a coma. Only then did his doctors come to believe that he was suffering from a brain tumor. Leonor called George's close friend, Emil Mossbaker, and explained their dire need to find a neurosurgeon. They found Harvey Cushing in Boston, but he had retired several years earlier and recommended Dr. Walter Dandy, who was out on a boat fishing with the governor of Maryland. Mossbaker called the White House and had a Coast Guard cutter sent to find the governor's yacht and bring Dr. Dandy quickly to the shore, where they then chartered a plane and flew Dr. Dandy to Newark Airport and then to Los Angeles. But it was too late. Gershwin's condition was critical and the need for surgery was immediate. The surgery took place without Dr. Dandy, and the doctors of the Cedars of Lebanon Hospital removed a large brain tumor, only then to have him die the next morning at the age of 38. For years to come after his death, Porky and Bass would receive a Broadway revival in 1942 and began premiering in countries all over Europe in 1943, first at the Royal Danish Theater in Copenhagen. Unfortunately, these performances in Europe faced the issue of casting all mostly white singers, some performing in blackface. As the opera began to sweep across the world, its racial subject matter became a controversy with blacks and whites alike having plenty to say about it. The racial controversy had, and has to this day, several facets, particularly when dealing with stereotypes of the African-American and black communities, like all of them living in poverty, solving problems with their fists rather than their minds, and taking drugs on the regular. Countries all around the world faced issues when scheduling the opera. Most productions would be mounted, but frequently they would shut down early. Despite the opera subject matter, it was its music that kept the people so mesmerized by it. Critics couldn't figure out how to evaluate it. Was it an opera or simply an ambitious Broadway musical? Once they figured out what it was, they could probably criticize it, and even Gershwin's explanation didn't solve the problem. I think theater historian Robert Kimball put the conundrum into words very nicely. It crossed the barriers. It wasn't a musical work per se, and it wasn't a drama per se. It elicited response from both music and drama critics. 
but the work has sort of always been outside category. So there you have it. Call Porgy and Bess what you want. If it's both opera and Broadway, and was a leader in blending the two styles together. That may be a secondary reason why Gershwin labeled it as a folk opera. It wasn't an opera for one group of people. This was an opera for everyone. Opera lovers and Broadway musical lovers alike. No matter if you were black or white, high class or low class. This was a work that tore down an abundance of walls and gave everyone a chance to come together and enjoy music. This episode of the Composer Chronicles was written, researched, and edited by me, Stephen Trigar, with theme music written by Daryl Banner. Sources and other music used in this episode can be found in the show notes or by visiting alexandriamedia.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, consider leaving a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, or wherever you can leave a rating and a review. If you'd like to listen to clips from Porky and Best, you can do so by going to the Composer Chronicles' Spotify playlist. Simply click on the link in the show notes or type in the Composer Chronicles into the search bar. You can find the Composer Chronicles on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Cron Podcast. Next week, I am joined by conductor Kevin Fitzgerald for an episode on one of the greatest musical minds of the 20th century, Pierre Boulez. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next time. Alexandrian Media, Art and Culture for the Modern Era. 